think there's no better way to walk up to this pulpit than after a song like that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve, choir and orchestra. And the truth is, He is my glory, and He's the lifter of my head. And that's a truth straight from God's Word for us this morning. Well, I know we've got business to do here today, but I would hate for us to miss what we're here for. This is the Lord's Day. And so we've come before Him to worship Him and to exalt Him, the name that is above all names, and now to consider His Word. And so as I come to proclaim it, I hope that we can all put our hearts and our frame of mind in the right place as we consider what the Holy Spirit may want to speak to us about today. So let's begin by opening in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we're so grateful that we can be here, and we declare today that You are our great and glorious God, Maker of all things. And Father, we know that You are sustaining all of life, our lives even right now. And we confess to You that we're weak, and we confess to You that we're filled with sin. But we're so thankful that You give us redemption through the blood of Jesus. And now, God, as we come to consider Your Word, we pray, Holy Spirit, that You would speak directly to our hearts. Let me just simply be conduit as You deal with the souls of the people that are in this room. We love You and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, um, when I was serving as the college minister, we took a group of college students up to Gatlinburg. And at the time, my wife was expecting. And so I think sometimes when you're pregnant, your fingers start to swell. And so she had, I don't know, I've never been pregnant before, but according to her, it happens. So she removed her uh, engagement ring and her wedding band and put them uh, perhaps on uh, her pinky while she was riding up. Now, one of the perks of being pregnant was that Rachel didn't have to ride in the bus. She got to ride up with Rick and Teresa Milney in Teresa's SUV, and they were driving up to Gatlinburg, and somewhere along the way, Rick had to apply the brakes pretty firmly, and it caused a little bit of a jerk in the vehicle, and Rachel's rings flew off of her finger into the floorboard of the car. So she bent over and picked up the wedding band, but couldn't quite find that engagement ring, the one with the diamond. And... Uh, <laughs> She said, don't worry, when we stop, I'll look for it. So they stopped perhaps at Wendy's or somewhere like, I think it was a Wendy's in East Tennessee. She says, yes, in East Tennessee. And uh, they got out and Rachel bent over to get the ring and it wasn't there. So Rick and Teresa started digging around for the, for the ring. They looked in the folds of clothing in pockets. I think y'all even looked around the vehicle to see if it had fallen out of the doors. They never found the engagement ring that I bought for my wife. Then they showed up at the cabin and the college students started searching because they said, there's a ring out there. So they started searching. Nobody ever found it. Rachel, I mean, uh, when we got back to Columbia, Teresa took the vehicle to the dealer and under her watchful eye, let them search for this diamond ring that never showed up. Now, it's a terrible thing to lose something of such sentimental value and <clears throat> monetary value as well. <laughs> And I know you're probably thinking, why would you start off with a story like this? But you all know the panic that sets in when something's missing, right? And you look for it and you search for it with everything that you've got and you can't find it. Well, in the end, the ring is just a ring, right? Well, today I want to talk to you about something that's much more serious, which is a lost soul. And Jesus talks to us about what it's like for God to search for the lost and even explains the great joy our great God experiences when somebody who is lost is found. 
And this particular parable that Jesus told is recorded in a couple of the different Gospels. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Luke 15 as we consider even Jesus' words this morning. I'm going to read to you Luke 15 verses 1 through 7. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. This story of Jesus's, this parable that he tells, illustrates how God is filled with joy over the fulfillment of his mission, which is to find lost souls. So this morning, I want us to consider for us that as followers of Jesus, we must step into his mission and make it our own of rescuing lost souls. So how can we do that? How can we practically step into God's mission and make it our own? I think the passage of Scripture gives us three ways that we can do that. So this morning, the practical ways we step into God's mission to rescue lost souls and make it our own is through compassionate interaction, by taking action, and in joyful reaction. Verse 1 points out that it was the tax collectors and the sinners who were all coming out to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes were nearby, and the passage says they were grumbling. And I hate it when people grumble, you know? They're just over there just whining. Sometimes this happens in our family, but I don't want to go there. I don't want to eat that. Well, sometimes, I mean, what happens here in the Scriptures, the Pharisees and scribes are just grumbling. I can't believe this. They probably knew these folks by name. And they're saying, he welcomes so-and-so. Can you believe he's eating with him? This is ridiculous. He calls himself a holy man. I can't believe he would do that. But Jesus is not deterred by that. Jesus is welcoming this unacceptable interaction with a group of outcasts. You and I step into God's mission to rescue the lost through compassionate interaction. You know, it's a real interesting observation when you recognize in the scriptures that the folks who were that were least, um, uh, the, the people that were the furthest away from God were the ones who were most attracted to Jesus. These are tax collectors and sinners. These are folks that you would say probably have no business being around God or the the scriptures don't want anything to do with him. But those are the people that were intrigued by Jesus. And Luke even uses hyperbole. He says all of the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. And then we have on the other hand, these Pharisees and scribes. The people that folks would probably assume are the closest to God. The ones who knew the scriptures, who abided by the the laws and observed the different rituals and ceremonies and feasts. Those people who were, by conventional wisdom, closest to God were most repelled by Jesus. Jesus offends them. 
But Jesus is not deterred, even though these leaders of the faith are grumbling. In fact, it may be their grumbling that compelled Jesus to tell the three stories that Luke captures in chapter 15. A story about a lost sheep, a story about a lost coin, a story about a lost son. Because in those stories, Jesus defends his involvement with sinners. You know, to act with compassion and to welcome someone uh, through these intentional interactions is not really a difficult thing. We would say that's probably an easy thing to do. But let's be honest for a moment. Except for a few rare and notable exceptions, the church in general has not been good at pursuing God's mission. I hope that doesn't offend you. Uh, now don't get me wrong here. God in his sovereignty used the greatest movement the world has ever known, the church, to advance his gospel from a small band of followers in first century Israel clear around the globe and it's still advancing today. But in a lot of ways the local church gets really focused on unimportant things, sometimes inconsequential matters, to the point that they fail to pursue God's grand mission in this world. And maybe we haven't understood his mission, but I would think sometimes we definitely haven't pursued it. So why is that? Why do you think that is, that we fail to follow after God's grand mission to rescue the lost? Perhaps we let our desire for a certain life or maybe a certain uh, level of comfort to get in the way. You know, we start idolizing ourselves and start putting ourselves in front of what God's desire for us is. And in fact, sometimes we get so comfortable with things that we won't let anybody interrupt that or anything, sometimes even the call of God. In our culture, the idol of self will neutralize any zeal we might have for God's mission. When you start focusing on yourself and idolizing yourself, any passion you have for God and his mission will be cut off. I think there's something else at play that's preventing us from pursuing God's mission. And I think that it is that we have not understood the gracious and loving heart of our Heavenly Father. Now, I want you to hear something you already know. In fact, 90% of you, maybe more, have this memorized. But I'm going to paraphrase for you, and I want you to try to hear this with fresh ears today. God so loved this world that he would send his own son to save it. God loves this world and God loves you so much he would send his own son into this world to rescue you, to die so that you could be saved. We fail to understand God's heart for people. Now Luke does a great job of capturing it here. He records these three parables that Jesus tells and they do a fantastic job of helping us to understand God's heart for people. He tells a story about the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one, puts forth the effort that's needed to rescue the one that's missing. He tells about a woman who's lost a, a coin. She turns the house upside down, says she sweeps everywhere, finally finds the coin, celebrates and throws a party. And then, of course, the most famous of the three stories about a heavenly, I mean, about a father, a loving father who has this prodigal son who's gone off into the far country, living in wild living, doing all kinds of terrible things, throwing the love of his father back in his face. And that father is standing at the corner, weeping, longing, praying 
for the return of his son. And when he comes home, he embraces him and throws a lavish celebration there. God loves people, particularly people that are lost and in need of a rescue. So what are you going to do with that? Well, I think that we have to change the way that we see the people around us. That's the first way that we apply this to our hearts today. So go ahead and ask yourself, how do you see the people around you that are not necessarily living for the Lord? How do you see them? Do you see them the same way that the Pharisees and scribes see them? Do you just grumble about them? I can't believe they do that. They deserve what's coming to them. Living like that, that's a terrible thing. Or do you see them like our Heavenly Father sees them? Does your heart break for them? Do you sense the brokenness and the hopelessness that's there in their life? Are you burdened to think, you know what? I need to tell them about the love of Jesus and the hope of God that's found in a relationship with the Lord. Do we make sure they hear from us about the Father's love? Now, this is an easy evaluation, but it's a really, it hurts to ask this question. But here's the question you can ask. How long has it been since you talked to a lost person about the Father's love? How long has it been? Now, I hope you feel the conviction of that, but not the guilt. Because I hope you get convicted enough to motivate you to say, that's what I need to do. That's what I need to do. Well, hear me out. If it was so important to God to send Jesus into a lost world, and if it was so important to Jesus to find the lost, isn't it high time that we, as the followers of Jesus, ask whether the things that are important to God are important to us? Are the things that burn in the heart of Jesus burning in our hearts this morning? The Pharisees and scribes, they grumbled because Jesus was receiving and eating with these tax collectors and sinners. So we step into God's mission to rescue the lost through compassionate interaction. But Jesus didn't just associate with them. He didn't just dine with them. He felt compelled to do something about it. Well, it's the same for us. His heart is that we would join him. We step into God's mission to rescue the lost by taking action. Verses 3 and 4, it says, So he told them this parable. This is how Jesus preached. A lot of times it was in parables. So he tells them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Jesus wants his listeners to identify with this story. So he says, what man among you? Which, if you were a shepherd with a hundred sheep, what would you do if one of them went missing? Well, I think since he's posing it that way, we ought to do the same thing. What man among you? Consider you're in the shoes of a shepherd or sandals of a shepherd, you know, and you're out there and you've got your hundred sheep, one goes missing. What would you do? Now I know it's a stretch because you're like, I don't really know what shepherds do. <laughs> you know, I don't know what I should do. And there's, there's, there's a little bit of a, you know, we, we can't quite connect with it. You know, some way to the point, I, like for example, um, I'm a bird in the hand kind of guy, you know. Bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And so you tell me I got 99 and one's missing, we'll get by with 99, right? I, I feel like I think that sometimes, right? I know that's the wrong feeling. Maybe I should connect it, you know, if we ended up at Disney World with our four kids and three showed up at the end and one was missing, I hope they're having fun, right? I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But, you know, you say, but uh, perhaps it was about value because this sheep 
was property to him. You know, he had a lot of value, so of course he's going to go after him. But that's not Jesus' emphasis in this story. It is not about the loss of property. His emphasis here is on the effort to which the shepherd went after the sheep. He left the 99. He crossed over hill and dale, went into the hot desert to rescue this lost sheep. That's where the emphasis is. One man says, it is imperative for us to know that we serve a God who is constantly on mission to save the one lost sheep. That's his mission yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He goes to great lengths for even one. You know that bird in the hand mentality that I have sometimes, maybe you, it's really rooted in convenience. You know, because it's, it's kind of an inconvenient thing to go after the missing sheep when you've got 99 of them there to deal with. <clears throat> you know, it's unexpected possibly. It's labor intensive. You know, I, it's, you shouldn't get caught up in the details of a parable because we get really obsessed with certain things we pull out of it that are not there when we do it. But I would imagine that perhaps this shepherd recognized at the end of the day the sheep was missing. You know what it's like, right? At the end of the day, and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm so tired. I just want to prop up my feet, and now the sheep's gone missing. But he is a good shepherd, so he goes after the sheep in that moment. But this is the problem. If you let convenience drive your life, you will miss greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus says the one who's great in his kingdom is the servant of all. And it is never convenient to serve. It is never convenient to serve God. It's never convenient to serve other people. Um, my wife has a bad habit, and I know this is the danger of being not married to the guy that's preaching, so I'm sorry. But my wife has a bad habit. At least I think she does. Um, it seems to me that the exact second I lay down in the bed ready to go to sleep is when she all of a sudden remembers all the things she needs me to do before I go to bed, right? I don't know if anybody else has ever experienced this. And it's like just Two seconds ago, I was standing up. It would have been so convenient, you know. Well, this happened in dramatic fashion the other week. Uh, she says to me, well, I climb in bed, lay my head down. I'm, I'm about asleep. I've just been there for one second, so not really. But just lay down. And she says, oh, Wes, can you go get such and such? I don't remember what it was. I would like for you to think that I did not pretend like I didn't hear her in that moment. <laughs> Uh, what I would like for you to think is that I immediately jumped up and said, oh, yes, babe, what else can I get you? Can I do something else for you? What I would like for you to think is that I did not lay there and make her get up and get whatever it was. <laughs> and since that's what I want you to think, I'm going to stop with the story. But if rather than a life of meaning, we are pursuing a life of convenience, we will fail to serve others. And we will fail to fulfill God's mission in our life. Daryl Bach writes that Luke 15 drives towards Jesus' commission statement in Luke 19.10. Just a couple chapters later, Luke records for us this interaction that Jesus has with the small man Zacchaeus. And in Luke 19.10, Jesus says this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is saying, for me, the Son of Man has come to seek and to find and to save and rescue the lost. That's what his goal is. That's what his focus is. Well, God calls us to pursue the lost in the same way. That's his mission, and he wants us to make it our own. 
The shepherd left the 99 to go after the one. Now, a lot of times you can read, same thing, you read these parables and you think, well, what did he do with the 99? You know, did he put them inside of a gate? Were they running wild? Did he not care about them? That's what we do sometimes when we read these stories. Um, that's not Jesus' point here. But there may be something for us to pull out of this. The shepherd, in order to rescue the one, had to leave the 99. What is it that you and I have to leave behind to go after the one? I think a lot of times, every time it'll be convenience, okay? Every time. Um, it, could be, um, um, it could be a certain level of comfort. It could be our comfort zone. I think that Jesus may actually be calling some of you to leave behind your future hopes and dreams and your personal goals for your life in order to join in on his mission. I think he's doing that. You may have to put your reputation on the line. What is it that you need to willingly sacrifice in order to step into God's great mission? Well, it will always require time and energy. Um, the Sunday school director of the Southern Baptist Convention is a man named Alan Taylor. Alan used to be on staff at First Baptist Woodstock, but he's from uh, the, the good old uh, East Tennessee country where I'm from, okay? And uh, so we're from Johnson City, Tennessee, the home of Steve Spurrier. And uh, most people in Johnson City were not very happy with Steve Spurrier when he graduated Science Hill High School because instead of going to Knoxville, he went to Gainesville, right? So uh, they didn't really like him in that moment. But my mother always said that she loved Steve Spurrier because she said, when he was interviewed, he always sounds like I do, is what she would say. <laughs> well, Alan Taylor is from East Tennessee. He's from Knoxville. And um, when he talks, he sounds a lot more like my dad. And so people from East Tennessee can really understand what he's getting at when he makes a point. And this is what Alan says. He says, ain't hardly nobody been saved what ain't been went after. Ain't hardly nobody been saved what ain't been went after. Now folks from East Tennessee will understand that. I hope you catch on. But this is the point. The lost do not find themselves. It is found people who find people. Well, Jesus demonstrated that we step into God's mission to rescue the lost through compassionate interaction and in taking action. But what awaits that interaction and that action is joyful reaction. So you and I step into God's mission to rescue the lost and make it our own in joyful reaction. I want you to notice the shepherd rejoiced. It says he picks up the sheep, puts them on his shoulders, and he rejoiced. And then what does he do? He goes home and he says, look, I found my sheep. And they all start rejoicing. And then Jesus drives home his point here whenever he says in verse 7, I tell you in the same way as that, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no rejoicing. So Jesus says the response to being rescued is celebration. It's joy. Now think of the contrast. How did this passage open? Pharisees and scribes were doing what? Grumbling. So they're grumbling. Jesus is interacting with sinners. He says when one of these gets found, heaven starts partying. That's what he says there. <clears throat> but we all know, uh, okay, it's kind of an interesting idea because we can't relate to these shepherds. But you think, he takes the she sheep home and he finds all these people and he's like, my sheep. And they're all like, sheep. Everybody's so happy he found the sheep. But we all know what it's like when somebody loses something and then finds it. And it's, you, you just get overjoyed with their joy, right? That's what happens. When I was in college, I worked for a camp called Sea Salt. 
met at Coastal Carolina University in um, Conway. And uh, uh, a particular group was there one year from Kentucky, kind of an underprivileged area. And um, they, a lot of them had never seen the beach, but they got down there and they checked, oh, this is what they did. They made the most of the week. So the camp started on Monday, they came on Saturday because they really wanted to be able to experience the beach. So Saturday night, they arrive at the dorms, they check in, they give them keys attached to green lanyards. They say, if you lose it, it's gonna cost you, and it was like a hundred bucks. And these kids are thinking, oh my goodness, I can't afford that. So they all kept up with it, right? Well, they said, okay, y'all load your stuff into the rooms, and since some of you have never seen the ocean before, we'll head there now. So they hopped in the buses, they drove over to uh, Garden City, and they went out running into the ocean. There was one guy in particular, a high school student, football player, and he ran in the ocean, and it was a little while later when he realized the key, and it was gone. And he thought, oh my goodness. Now his week of camp is already ruined because it's Saturday, camp doesn't start till Monday, but he's lost his key, and it's gonna cost him a fortune that he can't afford. So he looked and looked and searched for the key, and he never found it. Chaperone said, let's pray about it. This guy wasn't a Christian, uh, the, the young man, but he said, let's pray about it and see if God might lead us there. They prayed, they didn't find it. Next day, Sunday, they go to church, and then they go to, uh, they decide they're going to spend the day at the beach, so they go to Surfside. Now, this uh, kid, when he gets there, he immediately starts searching. He doesn't recognize the difference between Garden City and Surfside. So he's looking for that key, trying to find a high school student, plays football, and all of a sudden, he walks by a lifeguard stand, and hanging on the lifeguard stand is a green lanyard with a key. It's his key. Can you imagine the celebration he had? Now, I didn't know this story. And so on Monday, we started camp. And at the worship, after the worship service, we had an invitation. And at the invitation, this young man walks right up to me. And I said, well, uh, what are you coming forward today for? And he said, I figure if God cares enough about me to help me find that key, then I can live my life for him. I didn't know what he was talking about, you know. So I said, okay, the key, you know. <laughs> His chaperone knew and said, I know what he's talking about. Uh, a friend of mine named Angie, and she took him back, led him to the Lord. He went home and led his mom to the Lord. And then he led a couple teammates on his football team to the Lord. Now, sometimes I like to think about how did that key get there? You know, what happened? You know, and maybe it was that uh, God miraculously just moved it from Garden City to Surfside and, you know, uh, poof, on top of the lifeguard stand. Or maybe uh, he sent Gabriel or Michael or some angel and said, you go down there, you take that key, hang it there. And then, you know, the angel hanging out in the dunes just to watch and to see the celebration. Or maybe he, the Lord blew a little bit harder on the waves and it just, you know, put that key up on the lifeguard. More than likely, it got there through the ocean and somebody saw it and said, somebody's going to be looking for this and hung it up not knowing that all of heaven's attention was on that key, knowing whenever that boy found it and connected it to the goodness of God, it was going to set off a party in heaven. Jesus gives us insight into how heaven reacts to certain people. He shows that 99 self-righteous people who keep all of the commandments, all of the rituals, observe the feasts and the celebrations, bring little joy to heaven. But one sinner who bends his knee to the Lord Jesus Christ sets off a party. Jesus says there will be more joy over that. That's a fantastic idea, but it can cut pretty deep too. Sometimes I can feel like <clears throat> I've been doing a pretty good job. I've been living life, my life for the Lord, but that brings no joy to heaven. 
You know, and I think heaven ought to be smiling on me. God ought to be proud of me. And I fail to remember that in my best day, I am desperate for the grace of God. Doesn't matter how many good things I think I've done. I am wickedly sinful without the love and the blood of Jesus in my life. For me to simply think that God owes me, I must remember that it, God takes no pleasure in my self-righteousness. Well, since we know he's on a rescue mission, because the real business of heaven is seeing lost be found, and he's on a rescue mission, will we join him? Will we step into his mission and make it the mission of our lives? In summarizing the meaning of this parable, Craig Blomberg gives three clear points. He says, first, God takes initiative to go to great lengths to seek and save lost sinners. In other words, God puts forth great effort. Second thing, salvation of lost men and women is a cause for celebration. That's why I love we erupt into applause when we see people, see people baptized in this congregation. Third thing, those who profess to be God's people can never be satisfied that their numbers are sufficiently great so as to stop trying to save more. God is always after the one more. We can never say, we got enough folks. There's always one more. Well, you and I have the opportunity to step into God's mission. How are we going to do that? I think the first thing is, is adjusting the way we see the world. We must look with God's eyes and see opportunities around us. We need to live on mission with God. You know, a real practical way is to start in your neighborhood. Get to know your neighbors. You can talk to them about the weather, the Gamecocks, the Tigers. But when's the last time you talked to them about the Lord? Let them know where you go to church. Invited them to church. Shared with them the hope of the Lord. Or maybe it's taking somebody who's a co-worker, a classmate, or somebody lives in your dorm to lunch. They'd love to have a friend. But you can also share with them the hope of heaven. We will only step into God's mission and make it our own when we allow ourselves to see the brokenness in this world and to feel God's burden in Christ to put it all back together. Now the big question that we all should not miss when we read Luke 15 is, am I lost? We read about a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost sheep. What about me? Am I lost? I know some of you think you walk in here like the 99 righteous who need no repentance. The scholars differ on what maybe Jesus meant there. Maybe he was being sarcastic about the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes. But the point is, Scripture says there's no one righteous, not even one. We all need the blood of Jesus for forgiveness. So are you lost? Do you feel the weight of your sin? Are you tired of carrying around that burden? Are you ready to give it to the Lord? Jesus shed his blood on the cross for you so that you could be forgiven. And his resurrection is a promise to you that you too can be resurrected into new life. Our Heavenly Father is still like that father looking for one son to come home and embrace him. He's like the woman still sweeping the room looking for that lost coin. He's still like the shepherd going after one lost sheep. Is that you? God loves you dearly. Our Father in God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to consider your word. And Lord, we now pray that you would speak to our hearts. Father, help us not to walk away and think it was nice to gather with the saints. But Lord, let us be compelled today to respond to how you want us to change, to act, to move, to live. Pray for those who don't know you, that today would be the day that they would respond to you. We thank you for your goodness, for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If the Lord's speaking to you today, maybe it's about salvation, maybe it's about joining our church, or maybe it's about a renewed commitment, I'm gonna inv invite you to respond. So you stand, our choir will sing, 
As they sing, you respond.